something more than beloved. Y'all all right? All right. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice in your word. We pray that right now you would free us from distraction. Could be the distraction of some bodily discomfort, of an anxious mind. Could be the distraction of a necessary and an urgent matter. But whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you would you would block it out so that we could hear you. Holy Spirit, we pray, take this word that you inspired and make it alive to us. Use it, O oh Lord, to divide thoughts and intentions. Use it, O oh Lord, to, to pierce our hearts and our minds, to illumine us, to give us understanding, to sanctify us by your word. Speak to us, O oh Lord, we pray, and give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning is the last day for our theology of cookouts. We end with this question. Who pays for the cookout? That's an important question because cookouts ain't cheap. Not good ones. Amen. That's right. I'm a grill master out there. No. It, it may be that the entire expense of the cookout is taken care of by the host. But most of us ain't got friends like that. Pockets that deep. So most of our cookouts, big cookouts, for example, are uh, cookouts where everybody brings a little something, right? We each show up with a dish or drinks, single guys, or something store-bought for folks who can't cook, right? Each person offers something. But no person's contribution makes the cookout. Right? You, you might bring drinks and red cups, but that doesn't make the cookout all by itself. You can't have a cookout just with drinks. Or you, you might bring a fantastic side dish, but that doesn't make the cookout. Even if you brought the meat, somehow it's not a cookout with the other fixings. The contribution matters, but it's not the whole cost. Even when everyone brings something, there's still usually a person or a family who provides the most essential things that make the cookout a cookout. They provide the place to gather, the, the main dishes. They provide a, a vibe or a, a mood. And they are sort of the MCs. They are the host of the festivities. And in that way, the, the host is seen as the one who is providing for everyone in that essential, basic sense. As we continue our study of the book of Leviticus this morning, we see that all God's people come to God's cookout with an offering. But God is the one who really makes the cookout a cookout. He is the one who holds all things together, who hosts, who orchestrates, who provides. We, we offer our best, but God is the one who offers the best offering, who provides our greatest need. Now, for a little context, as we look at Leviticus chapter 6 and 7, which Precious read so wonderfully for us, remember that Leviticus continues the story of Exodus. So look for, with me for a second at the last two verses in chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, which summarize and give us context for these first seven chapters. It says there, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, notice verse 38, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So, so the children of Israel are in the wilderness of Sinai. The Lord is with Moses on the mountain, giving him instructions. These are the instructions that were written there as they're standing there on the foot of the mountain, beholding the glory of God, preparing to become the people of God in the place that God has determined. And God gives him instructions for these, these sacrifices. 
God has delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and now God is beginning the work of making them an actual people, a free people, a kingdom of priests who worship and serve him. He instructed him in Exodus to build the tabernacle with all of its furnishings, how to build the the tent of meeting where he would gather with his people. And now Leviticus has given us the details of those sacrifices, those offerings, how they were to take place, where they were to take place, etc. And when you put all these offerings together, you have a scene that looks like a giant cookout fellowship. Chapters 1 to 3, for review, give instructions for what we call, might call the voluntary offerings, the, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Then chapters 4 and 5 gave us instructions for two mandatory offerings, the sin offering and the guilt offering. The sin offering represented the removal of the pollution of sin, and the guilt offering required restitution to be made with neighbors before we could um, rightly worship God. And so those first five chapters have focused on the people's responsibility, what the average Israelite was to understand and to do as they came to God to worship via these sacrifices. When we come to chapter six and seven, now it shifts. We still have those same five sacrifices, plus another one called the ordination uh, offering. We still have those same sacrifices, but now the emphasis is on not what the people are to do, but what the priests are to do, right? And so we're looking at the priest's responsibilities, and we're looking at how God provides. We see that while people brought offerings to the tabernacle, the offerings were actually God's provision for three things. And this is sort of the outline for our talk here. God provides food for the priests. God provides fellowship with the people. And God provides a forecast of the Savior to come. Food for the priests, fellowship with the people, and a forecast, a commercial of the Savior who is to come. And as we look at Leviticus chapter 6 and 7, may the Lord really convince us that he's our provider. May we trust him to be so. So look with me um, at this first point here. God provides for the priest. He provides food for the priest. This is a little bit of background again. You may remember that the Levites, the tribe where the priests come from, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. God chose the Levites to be the tribe from which the priests would come. And you couldn't be an Old Testament priest without being a Levite. Now, you could be a Levite and not be a priest, but you couldn't be a priest and not be a a Levite. And in Exodus 28, verses 1 to 3, God chose Aaron and Aaron's sons, his four sons, to be the the first priests of this, this newly minted nation. And these are the priests who were alive at the time of the writing of Leviticus. Now, as priests to God, they were to be entirely dedicated to God. Serving at the tabernacle was the priest's calling and vocation. And because of that, a Levite priest ordinarily didn't have like a side hustle. This is what they did. And they didn't have another source of wealth or income. They were to gather their income from their labors in the priesthood. And Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, puts it this way. You can write this down and look at this later if you want to, but it summarizes as well. And, and it says this, and the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So here was a people who were to treasure God as their inheritance, who were to have no earthly inheritance because they were to have God himself, right? And so for that reason, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have a way of building wealth or raising income, but, but God provided for them nevertheless in the system of sacrifices that we see here in chapters six and seven. So real quickly, notice that there are some sacrifices that only God had, right? And then there are other sacrifices that the priests could eat from. So it's like God sort of set himself a plate aside at the cookout and then left all the other sort of foods and fixings on the table for the priests to enjoy. 
Notice that the two of the offerings are entirely to the Lord. That's a burnt offering, which we see in chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. And the ordination offering, which we see in verse 19 down to 23. Now, the burnt offering, as you remember, is like the most fundamental offering in the system. It is the offering that is given to turn away God's wrath towards sin and to make atonement uh, between God and the people, is to make the people at one with God again by covering their sin and turning away God's anger, right? So that's the, that's the burnt offering, and that offering belongs only to God. And then there's the ordination offering. This is the offering given when someone is ordained to the priesthood. They are to be um, ordained in a certain way, in a special way. And there's a grain offering given at that time. Now, because the priest belongs solely to God, that offering then is offered solely to God. And so both with the burnt offering and the grain offering, the priests don't eat from those. Those are consumed by God, as it were, burned up in their entirety on the altar because it belonged only to God. But now there are, there are four other offerings in this chapter, in these two chapters, and, and three of them in particular are called most holy, right? And these three offerings that are called most holy, those are all the offerings up to chapter 7, verse 10. All these other offerings are offerings that are eaten by the priests. Notice, for example, the grain offering. Look with me in verse 15. There was to be a memorial, chapter 6, verse 15. There was to be a memorial portion, right? A, a sort of symbolic portion burned on the altar, right? But the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. They shall eat it. And you're going to see that repeated throughout this chapter, that there's a holy offering to be eaten by holy priests in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. That's true also of the sin offering. Notice, remember now, the sin offering removed the pollution of sin from the worshiper. It allowed the Israelite to come to God clean, right? And that's why we're told in chapter 6, verse 25, that it is most holy. It was so holy, in fact, verse 27 says, whatever touches it, whatever touches his flesh shall be holy, right? And verse 29 says, every male among the priests may eat of it. And then we see a very similar thing with the guilt offering. The guilt offering, again, was that offering that was offered to um, both make restitution with those that we may have sinned against or Israelites may have sinned against and to um, reconcile and restore things with God. It had a horizontal and a vertical aspect to it. And the guilt offering, too, is, is most holy to God and is eaten by the priest. Look at Leviticus chapter 7, verse 4. Every male among the priests can eat of it. Well, that's chapter 7, verse 6, excuse me. And on top of the food with the guilt offering, the, the priest also could have the, the hide from the animal, the skin from the animal, which could have a number of uses from clothing to housing to any number of things that could practically take care of the priest and his family. And so in this way, God is providing for the priesthood. We even see this in the peace offering. So look over in chapter 7, verses 16 to 18. Notice what we see there in terms of God's provision. If the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day, yeah, on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten, on the third day he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. So even with the fellowship offerings, there's this provision to eat on the first and the second day, depending upon the purpose for the offering. So what is God doing in the sacrificial system? He's providing both for himself offerings that satisfy his anger against his people's sin. And he's providing practically food and other resources for the priests in order that his entire system of worship might be sustained. Now, this, this may seem like an obscure kind of Old Testament passage and an obscure sort of Old Testament idea, but in point of fact, these things actually lay down the pattern for the New Testament church as well. 
for, for New Testament giving and provision. It is still the case that God provides for his people through the offerings of his people. So, so keep your finger in Leviticus with me and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. In this, in this entire chapter, um, Paul is talking about uh, his rights as an apostle to earn his living from the ministry. He's defending the right of other apostles to do that uh, and explaining and teaching to the Corinthian church why this is right. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul says this. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service? Now, who is that? That's the priest in the Old Testament. That those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. He's talking about what we just read in chapters 6 and 7. Then he applies it to the New Testament church. Notice verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You see the parallel there. He's saying, just as it's always been God's economy, to provide for the worship of his people, the instruction of his people, the religious leadership of his people through the offerings of the people in the sacrificial system. So it is the case even in the New Testament with the gospel that the so-called New Testament priests, quote unquote, if you will, the preachers of the gospel should also derive their living from the offerings of the people. Right? This has always been God's way of funding the ministry of funding the advance of the gospel, of funding the expansion of his church. It's not through grants to uh, foundations. It's not through government support. It's, it's not through a whole bunch of other things. It is ordinarily through the giving of his people. Now, there's another thing we should understand by way of application of this and God's provision for us is that we need to remember, according to Peter in the New Testament, that it's not just the gospel preacher who is a priest unto God. It is the whole church. We are a kingdom of priests. Every, every one of us, whether we do what I'm doing right now in terms of preaching or, or we do something else, if, if we are Christians, we are priests unto God. And so then the, the offerings and the giving that, that go to a local church are meant to minister to the needs of the priest, the entire body, the entire congregation. This is, this is why we have things like benevolence, for example. This is why sometimes we have special offerings for, for people who may be in need of some sort, right? It's by those same offerings that the priesthood of all believers are meant to be helped and comforted and encouraged from the offerings of God's people, right? So what we see in the Old Testament is simply foreshadowing what we see instructed in the New Testament. If, if you want to reduce the, the, Bible's, the Bible's sort of theology of economics into one word, it'd be this one word, share. Share. Share with your neighbor, share with your brother and sister, share together as a congregation and as God allows us to steward these resources, we seek to meet the needs of the priesthood. Whether it's the preachers who pastor and proclaim God's word, or whether it's the priests who are every member of the local church. It's how God ordinarily provides. You tracking with me? Any questions about that? All right, let's move to number two. So God provides food for the priests. But notice also God provides fellowship with the people. Now, it's the host of a cookout who sets the rules of the cookout, isn't it? We got this little phrase for it. We talk about house rules, right? So if you come to my house and we have a cookout and a space tournament, which we need to do when the weather breaks, got some people who I need to put in their place. We come to my house and we have a cookout, we have a space tournament. We're probably going to play by house rules, right? We're going to play space the way it's meant to be played. Joker, joker, deuce, deuce, you know what I mean? That's it. You know, this ace high mess, right? It's house rules. It's house rules, right? It's how it's meant to be played at that house, right? And so God has house rules for his cookout too. He has a specific place where he wants things brought. He wants the sacrifices made in a, in a particular way. And he also has rules for how people conduct themselves in worship, how they conduct themselves in gathering with him. And I want to just sort of 
pull out three things from these, these couple of chapters real quickly. Number one, he wants people to come to the cookout remembering the atonement that's been made for them. That's what's happening with the burnt offering. Go back to chapter 6, verse 9, where it says there, the burnt offering shall be on um, the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Or jump down to verse um, 13. Notice, notice what's said there, verses 12 and 13. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. What's the deal with this fire being kept burning continually? Well, Jewish commentators uh, and some Christian commentators sort of point us back to the first time the burnt offering was offered. And some of you will remember what happened. Fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. And it was an was indication that God himself, in all of his holiness, had accepted the offering on behalf of his people. And some commentators think, okay, part of what's happening here is they are meant to maintain that divine presence with them. And, and, and they do that by maintaining this fire, this fire that goes back to that first offering, right? And, and this, this perpetually burning fire what was an indication that God was a consuming fire, but that also in his holiness, he was, he was taking this offering on behalf of his people, and they were living in a kind of perpetual atonement, an unceasing atonement, that as long as this offering was being made, they were being reminded that there was an atonement that was meant to make them at one again with God and, and meant to turn God's anger away from their sins. And, and that this atonement then was to be uppermost in people's minds as they saw the smoke coming up from the altar or came to the tent of meeting to make their sacrifice. Just as when we come on a Sunday morning or rise on a Wednesday morning or meet together for Bible study on a Thursday night, uppermost in our mind should be the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where real atonement was made for our sins, not just symbolic atonement, this is why the writer of Hebrews says that for these Old Testament priests, they had to go into the, into the altar, to the altar, into the tent of meeting um, repeatedly, day after day, to make atonement for their sins. In fact, God specifies here with a couple of these offerings, they're to make it every morning and every evening. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that they had to do that because basically that was symbolic. Basically, that did not actually accomplish our atonement. But when Christ went into the Holy of Holies, not made with hands, and Christ sacrificed not the blood of bull and goats, but sacrificed his own blood in the presence of God, the writer of Hebrews tells us he did that once and for all time. And so there is no more sacrifice to be made. There is no more offering of atonement to be made. Jesus has done that once and for all. This is why we sing, the blood shall never lose its power. This is why we rejoice when we think that Jesus right now sits at the right hand of God the Father, always living to pray for us, to intercede for us. His blood still pleads for us. There's no tent we need to go to. There's no smoking altar we need to stoke and keep burning. There's Jesus, the once and for all time sacrifice, who is, whose blood is always cleansing those who believe. That's the entry price to the cookout, that you come cleansed of your sin with an atonement that is always effective, which is the atonement of Christ. 
This is how it's possible to be in his presence. Just as in the Old Testament, the, these offerings made it possible for people who had sinned to come into the presence of a holy God and not be consumed because of their sin. So now it's Christ's blood that allows us to come into the presence of God joyfully with no fear of being consumed and cast out. So that's the first thing, this always burning offering. You got to keep the grill going. But here's the second thing. It's this, that, that when it comes to sort of the fellowship that God provides, if, if one eats, everybody eats. If one eats, everybody eats. There's not going to be a, a situation where we can come to this fellowship and I'm going to just, you know, I'm tempted to do it, but I shouldn't. I'm just going to take all the ribs and the baked beans and the macaroni and cheese and maybe the potato salad, depending on who brought it, right? And I'm just going to eat that all by myself, right? We got a word for that, greedy, right? No, if, if one of us eat, we, we all eat, right? This is a, I'm seeing this particularly in chapter 7, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. All the rest of that section is dedicated to the peace offering or the, or the fellowship offering. And this is the offering that, that everyone could eat from, right? So look with me again in chapter 7, um, beginning in verse 14. The, the one who is referred to in verse 14, it says, and from it he, that's the ordinary Israelite, right? He shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offering. So the Israelite is offering this grain offering, this loaf, and the priest, uh, it belongs to the priest to eat, right? He's going to offer a memorial portion and keep the rest. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for Thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. So this peace offering could be given for three reasons. One is Thanksgiving. So the person is just offering this peace offering um, because God has done something in their lives and they are praising God and celebrating God's goodness. And so out of Thanksgiving, they offer this offering. And if it's a Thanksgiving offering uh, for a peace offering, then you have to eat it on the day that you make the sacrifice. But now notice um, verse 16, but if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or free will offering. So these are two other reasons. It may be that the person is making a vow to God. They're making a promise to God uh, to do something or they're dedicating something uh, for God's use. Or it's just a free will offering. They feel like praising God. God is good. That thing hits them in their, in their spirit. They want to celebrate the goodness of God no matter what's going on in their lives. And, and not because God has constrained them or controlled them or coerced them, but because they want to. Out of a free will, they are worshiping God and making this offering. Now, if it's for one of those two reasons, notice now, verse 16, the offering shall be eaten on the day that he offers the sacrifice, and on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. So you can eat this for two days, right? And keep in mind that this offering that's being made there now is an offering for which the, the priests get a piece. They're going to get, uh, later the text says, they're going to get the, the breast of the, of the animal. They're going to get the right thigh of the animal. But the rest of the animal now is butchered and provided to the, to the family, the one making the offering. And they would, they would have this feast, as it were, as a family with friends in community. And there's a lot of commentary that, that speculates that part of what they also to do was to remember the poor in this offering and to share this meal, not just with the family, but, but with others as well. And so it's, this is the entree. If the perpetual fire is the entry price, now we've got the entree. We've got the main course. We've got the main meal that's meant to be shared. If, if one eats, everyone eats. But then there's a third thing, a third house rule here. Third house rule. You got to keep the behavior clean. You got to keep the behavior clean. Nothing unclean can come into God's presence. And this is why in chapter 7, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, um, where now is not just addressing the priest and the priest's ability to eat, but also addressing all of Israel, the entire Israelite community, it, it, takes, it takes care to explain this point. Because there would be great possibility 
for the unclean Israelite coming from their day's work, coming from their day's journey, coming from their regular life, to come into or to try to come into the presence of a holy God without attending to their uncleanness. And that wouldn't be fellowship. That would lead to judgment. Notice, for example, chapter 7, verse 18. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted. Neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Remember that phrase, shall bear his iniquity. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. He's now talking about clean and unclean. He says, the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eat some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. Verse 25. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Verse 27. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, I don't think verse 27 applies to raw steaks, but y'all should cook your meat. But this, this notion of he shall bear his iniquity if he offers in an unclean way or comes himself unclean before a holy God means that his guilt, his sin shall rest upon them. That offering will have no effect for them. And then this idea, he shall be cut off from his people. There are at least two ways of thinking about that. One is he will very literally be separated from his family and friends and, and ostracized from the community. But that language to be cut off is often in the Bible symbolic language for being killed. Either way, the notion here, the language here is the language of judgment. That if, if we come into God's house unclean in an unworthy way, then we come and we bring judgment upon ourselves instead of the grace that we were hoping for. And so God's house rules are, are pretty clear. We can't come just any kind of way. There must be a, a, a covering atonement that continues to care for, take care of our sins. And, and we must come with a sense of community. If one eats, we, we all eat. And, and we must come clean before the Lord. He is holy. We are to be holy. Well, what, what application does this have to us as New Testament Christians? Well, it reminds us of the fellowship meal that we have, doesn't it, of the Lord's Supper. It is a, the Supper is a memorial. It is a remembrance of Jesus' death as atonement for our sins. And in eating the Lord's Supper, we are to share with the entire church. And we are to remember the poor. We see that instruction in, in 1 Corinthians, don't we? Our, our feasts as a people are meant to be clean. They're meant to be holy. Remember how Jude in Jude 12 reminds the people that he was writing to of these imposters who had snuck into the church uh, unbeknownst to other people and who were defiling things. Remember what he says in, in verse 12? He says, referring to those people, these are hidden reefs, or you could translate that word reef more literally, blemishes. These are hidden blemishes at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, without reverence for God, shepherds feeding themselves, right? Or, or think 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You can turn there with me if you like. Chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, where Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthian church about how to take the Lord's Supper. He's already began by saying, yo, you guys get together. You eat up all the food before others get there. Some of you get drunk at the table. And he just concludes, this is not the supper y'all are eating. I don't know what kind of meal y'all eat. I don't know who cook out y'all at, but this ain't God's, right? And then he gives them instructions in verse 27 and 32. And as I read this, see if you can hear the allusions back to Leviticus, right? Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord 
in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That language of body and blood hearkening back to sacrifice. That language of worthy or unworthily hearkening back to the idea of clean and unclean. The discernment of the body making an allusion to our sharing in this meal together. If one eats, we all eat. So all that the Old Testament is laying down in the sacrificial system is to bring us to our third point, pointing forward. It's given us a picture of what is to come, of what really is real. And so our third point is, is God is providing for us a forecast of the Savior to come. Let Let me say it this way. We cannot understand how the Old Testament applies to us until we first understand how the Old Testament as shadow fits together with Jesus as body. The Old Testament is a shadow, but the body, the substance, is Jesus. I want to show us three quick texts in the New Testament because what this means is we should, A, love the Old Testament but we should read it like New Testament Christians, okay? So how do the New Testament Christians read the Old Testament? I'm gonna give you three quick scripture references here, and then we're gonna take a couple of passages from Hebrews uh, and, and sort of end this morning. Here's the first scripture reference, Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Matthew five seventeen. Jesus is um, preaching there in a sermon, and he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish or to destroy or to loosen the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So whenever we're talking about Jesus and being New Testament Christians, and we're reading our Old Testament, the question isn't, well, how has Jesus done away with this as if it no longer applies? But how has Jesus fulfilled this? Because God's word stands forever, right? And so whenever we're reading our Old Testament, whatever we're reading about, one of the questions that needs to be in our head is, how has Jesus fulfilled this? Okay? Here's the second text. Um, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's where I got that language of shadow and body. The word substance there is, is the Greek word soma. could literally be translated body. Paul is using a word picture there. Our, our bodies, when the light hits it, cast a shadow, right? And so it's like, Christ is standing here in our day and the light of coming glory is shining on him and it casts a shadow that we call the Old Testament. And so what we need to do is learn to sort of match the shadow to the substance, right? And hug the body. You ever tried to hug a shadow? It's impossible, isn't it? But the body, that can be held. Christ, the substance, that can be held. One more. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. says, for since the law has but a shadow, there's that word again, but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. You see what he was doing there? He makes the application that those sacrifices can't make us perfect. But on what basis does he make that application? He makes that, he makes that application on the basis of the fact that the law itself is a shadow. It's not the actual true things to come. But the true things to come are in Christ. So whenever we're reading our Old Testament, we, we want to ask these three questions. 
How would these things be understood by an ordinary Israelite? How would these things be understood by an ordinary Israelite at the time? That's a question that gets us into the proper context, right? Then secondly, we want to ask this question, how are these things fulfilled in Jesus? How are these things fulfilled in Jesus? This is a shadow. Christ is a substance. How does he fulfill it, right? That gets us in the proper theological context. And then thirdly, we want to ask this question, then and only then, and so these questions have to be asked in this order. Number three, how do these things apply to the church and to me? How do they apply to the church and to me? Because until we've understood them in context and until we've understood Jesus' fulfillment, we're not then ready to bring it over to the people of God and down into our individual lives. Right? So, what do we do with chapters 6 and 7? Well, look with me in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 28. I bet you guys didn't, when we said we're going to do this series in uh, Leviticus, you didn't realize it was going to be a series in two books, Leviticus and Hebrews. Hebrews is a great commentary on Leviticus and the Old Testament in general. And notice how the writer of Hebrews reasons like a New Testament Christian. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 28. For it, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, he's not talking about the priests of the Old Testament system. He's talking about our high priest, Jesus Christ, right? It's fitting that we should have that kind of priest who understands us but who also is different from us. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So when we're reading about these sacrifices over and over again in Leviticus, and we're reading about the responsibility of priests, we're seeing the shadow. And it's pointing us forward to that coming Savior, who would not be a man, a servant, merely a man, but would be the God-man, would be the Son of God, who would be the perfect high priest, who identifies with us and yet is holy, who offers himself for us. To redeem us from sin. Or look with me in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. You recall a couple of sermons ago when we were thinking about the unintentional sins in chapters 4 and 5, um, we, we observed the fact that in the Old Testament there is no, there is no sacrifice for deliberate sin, right? Let that be background as we read Hebrews 10 here, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witness, witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You see what the writer is saying there? That if you were an ordinary Israelite who rejected the law of Moses, then you died with two or three witnesses testifying against you. Moses, the law, etc. all would condemn you. That's terrible. But what's worse is to be someone who has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God has shed his blood for your sins, and to reject that for a life of deliberately sinning. He says, there's no offering for that. There's no sacrifice for that. There's no sacrifice for stiff-necked rebellion against God. He, he uses an image there that, that goes back to Leviticus, I think, in some ways. He says, that person is trampling the Son of God underfoot. 
He's walking all over the cross. He's walking all over the blood of God. He is profaning the blood of the Son of God. And then I think he's hearkening back to Leviticus because you'll remember uh, in Leviticus, as, as Precious read that chapter, the priest was giving so many instructions about how to handle the blood, sprinkling on the altar in certain ways. If it was used in the sacrifice, you can't eat it. In fact, you can never eat it. Why? Because life is in the blood. And it would be the blood that would need to be offered to Christ or to God as a propitiation for sins. So to treat it in an unclean way would be to trample that sacrifice under your foot. Even how the ashes were handled after the sacrifice. You remember that section where the priest has to take off his ordinary priestly garments of linen and put on some clothes that were appropriate for going outside the camp to a clean place to dump the ashes? Then had to come back and change clothes again and wash those clothes? Or how it talked about if blood that was used in the sacrifice got into a wooden bowl, that bowl needed to be destroyed. Or a metal bowl, that bowl needed to be scoured. Right? That, that, that this blood was such a holy thing. It could not be used in profane purposes, in ordinary purposes, in unclean purposes. It would be to disrespect the sacrifice. The New Testament equivalent of that is hearing that God sent his son into the world to die for your sins, to shed his own blood for your sins and my sins so that we might have a cleansing, atoning sacrifice. To hear that and to shrug your shoulders and to turn away from it and to say, no, I'd rather sin. Don't do that, beloved. You're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. Don't do that. Do not harden your hearts this morning. Today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that God has appointed you to hear this message that He loves you, that He gave His Son for you, so that you might be cleansed of your sin and you might be brought back to Him that he might be your provider and you might be his worshiper. Today is the day for you to accept that God has done that for you through his son and to put your faith in him. Don't pull back. Don't harden your hearts. Don't allow your mind to dart off to something else and to treasure something else. Whatever is coming to mind right now that seems like it's too precious for you to give up in order to have Jesus, that's the thing that will make you trample the Son of God under your feet. That's an idol. That's a false god. In your own heart, destroy it. In your own mind, destroy it. Know that it will not make you right with God. It will not lead to your eternal life. It will not ultimately be satisfying. Because this world is passing away, but the world that Christ offers is forever. So this morning, if that's you, don't harden your hearts. Look to Jesus long and hard. Consider your sins. Consider the offering that he has made for your sins and put your faith in him as your God and Savior and live forever with him in his love. That's what God offers you this morning. It's free. I mean, it's costly. But Jesus paid that price. God is the provider of this cookout. You are the invited guest. But you must come clean. You must come with an atonement. You must come with faith in the Son of God. And if you do, you will live forgiven and loved forever. If you have questions about that, we'd like nothing more. Then to answer your questions this morning, talk with us after the service, stick back, hang out, come over to the house, whatever. Numbers on the bulletin, on the QR code, call us, email us. We'd like nothing more than to help you understand this and accept this because today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. And Christian, this is our Savior. We need no other sacrifice. We need to look for nothing else to be right with God. This is why we can come empty-handed and make our sacrifice our own bodies, our own selves. 
We don't need flour. We don't need bulls. We don't need goats. We don't need gold. We don't need frankincense. We don't need grain. We just need Jesus. And praise God, we have Jesus. He's never to be taken from us. He is always ours for our enjoyment. His blood is always pleading for us. So Christian, if you know your weakness, you know your sins, you know your faults, I wonder if you also know your Savior, that his blood is sufficient, that his grace is sufficient, that you can come to him in all of your weakness and all of your faults and all of your failures, and there we'll find grace and not judgment. Because of him, we will not be cut off. Because of him, we have been united to Christ and united to God forever. Be assured. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the best provider. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, your son. We praise you, O Lord, that having given us Christ, you will give us all good things along with him. So we pray, as our sister prayed earlier, that you would free us from this deficit mindset, from this poverty mentality, that you would free us from the notion of scarcity that would tempt us to believe that somehow Jesus is not enough, somehow your love is not enough, somehow your grace is not enough, and that we need to in some way take over or pursue other things. Free us, O oh Lord, from that besetting unbelief. And let us rest all of our hope in you. And let us find you to be true and to be the best provider. Providing our needs, providing fellowship, O oh Lord, providing Jesus. We praise you, O oh Lord, for all that you have given us. And when we've been in heaven 10,000 years and joined our tongues with the angels, we will only have just begun to praise you for your goodness and greatness. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.